eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to another episode of Part on Location. I'm Steve Part, and when you spent more than 20 years of your life traveling the road, first as a NASCAR crew chief, and now as an analyst for NBC, you are bound to meet some interesting characters. And today's character, without a doubt, won't anyone down with Letard on location. The idea is we bring you to some great locations and meet some great characters. But it's 2020. So the location is my office and my house. My guest, Lee Diffie. Lee, I assume you also are at your home. I am home. I'm in my basement. And uh, we're all getting too familiar with doing, doing meetings and chats this way, aren't we? Instead of face to face. So I'm going to tell the truth. Um, when I talked to Lee about coming on, we had to work out some Zooms, and I was trying to get the producer to help me record, and Lee said, I can just record it, mate. I can just request it. Lee, my guest can't record my own podcast. That's ruining the whole concept. <laughs> well, we've just done so many of these bloody Zooms, and, and, and uh, I've, you know, in between uh, motorsport events, I've been working with our producers on the Olympic side of things, and I've been doing a bunch of Zooms with track and field athletes and various things, and you know, when we were all staying at home, uh, you were doing stuff on digital and for the NBC YouTube channel and I was creating content and so we all kind of had to become, I, 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 I have floated through my 20 plus year television career at, at not being too techie and uh, I've, had to, I've had to up my game and learn a little bit finally. <laughs> Well, yeah, I never, never thought I would be so happy to see a lighting engineer is when I got over to start calling races because I'm not very good with the ring light. But for those who don't know, Lee, Lee has, as he mentioned, 20 plus years in television, uh, play-by-play guy for all the biggest sporting events you've seen when it comes to the motorsport. At NBC specifically, he's the lead play-by-play guy for all of our sports car coverage, our IndyCar coverage, uh, does rugby, uh, does Olympics. I'm not going to list them all because it'll ruin the podcast. He did F1. But, Lee, I, I got to go all the way back. So you and I have worked together. We covered NASCAR together, which I actually thoroughly enjoyed the couple races we did together in the booth. But when I did the research, Queensland, Australia to Connecticut, that's, that's, a, long, that's a lot of water between those two. You're going to have to give me some help. From what I understand, it started with motorcycles. First love was motorcycles. Yep. First love was motorcycles. Uh, I raced bikes uh, from the age of six till I was about 17. And uh, I have an older brother who was pretty good at it. And I had a bunch of friends who were really good at it. They went on to become MotoGP world champions and runner-ups, etc. So I was around that's that whole pretty motorcycle. Good. See, that's pretty good. You could call that better than pretty good. <laughs> so I was around the motorcycle scene, like, you know, a dirt track, like, like American flat track, you know, flat track and motocross. And, and um, I kind of, uh, when I stopped riding, went, you know, finished my senior years at school and then I went to university and, and then I just, I literally fell into it just by the, at the local motorcycle club. And then, um, you know, sped, sped through, you know, uh, time flies by and, you know, I was doing bigger events. I was, and this is all just on the public address, you know, no radio, no TV. And, right, right. And I was doing that. Um, you know, my very first commentary was at a place called uh, the Ipswich Motorcycle Club. And I think uh, on my first 
day. I was about 20, 20 years old or something like that. And I got paid $60 and I called nearly 100 races. Uh, and, and I was sitting in a wooden tower out the front of like the lap scoring ladies. And uh, it was me, a microphone and like a transistor radio. And when I, in between races, when I didn't want to talk, I just put the microphone in front of the speaker of the radio just to give like a little bit of... Uh, Oh, I'd love to hear these stories because, you know, I get to work with people like yourself and Rick Allen who have so much experience in me. I don't know anything about TV, right? They just shoved a mic in my face and said, good luck. Try not to say anything too stupid. Um, and I've been, I've been fortunate enough to have people like you take me under your wing and kind of show me the way. Um, so I think I remember, so I remember, you know, the interesting thing getting to work together. So I remember you back probably speed channel times with, with sports cars. But when I was doing my research, it shocked me. I didn't know you had F1 stint pre-NBC. So when you were BBC, you were F1 coverage then. So no, n never at the BBC. At the BBC, I did World Superbikes and World Rally. Um, okay. But I did, I, did, I did Formula One in Australia for Network 10. And then when I was at the BBC, I would go back to Australia and do some F1 work. And I would do, while I was living in the UK, I would do like foreign correspondent type work for Network 10 Australia, where I would go to some F1 Grand Prix, go to F1 launches, and then um, in my early days, I think even in my, uh, I think even in my first year at Speed, I would fill in for Bob Varsha when Bob had clashes with other events. And probably each, um, you know, a lot, a lot of years I would do anywhere between one and half a dozen F1 races at Speed when Bob had, again, had some um, programming clashes. And so when we got to NBC and it was myself, um, Steve Matchett and David Hobbs, uh, it wasn't like, it wasn't jarring and it wasn't like, oh, who are you, who are you? We'd actually worked together for a long time. So right. um, it was like an old pair of jeans, you know, we just, we just put them on and got going. So I, I love this question I receive all the time to say, hey, when did you think you were going to make it in racing? Um, and I tell everyone, I hoped I would make it in racing, but I think when I finally became Jeff Gordon's crew chief and we won at Martinsville, that was the time that I drove home and I said, well, damn, I think I'm going to be okay. I think I'm going to have a career in motorsport. So you mentioned you started in motorcycles and then you kind of switched over the PA announcer. There's so many steps along the way, but was there a moment though, where it was either love or confidence or a job offer where you said, you know what, damn it, I'm going to be a TV guy. Um, the, there was, there was a point, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know, the, uh, you know, the crossover with tires, like not necessarily in NASCAR, um, but like in road racing where there's a crossover of who's on wet weather tires and who's yeah. on slicks and that yeah. crossover when you have to come to the pits and you have to change. Well, I was at that crossover in the, in the mid 1990s when, um, I was a school teacher. I was a physical education teacher at a private Which place. we're, we're going to come back to that. So okay. not to interrupt, but we're coming yeah. back because I, phys ed teacher. Yeah. So I, so I was, so I was a teacher and um, I was, I was getting more and more of the commentary job. So I was now doing Australian supercross at like big venues, the Sydney entertainment center and uh, uh, Melbourne, like at, at, um, at uh, Rod Laver arena where they have the Australian open tennis. And I would be flying back to Brisbane on a Monday morning, trying to make the eight thirty AM assembly, you know, where we all had to be there for the, for the kids. And, uh, and then rushing into class, hadn't done my lesson plans. I was like, God, oh, this is, you know, it was kind of one, one thing's going to break here. Is it going to be my school, my teaching career? Or is it going to be, and, you know, I was getting bigger and bigger jobs and more opportunities. And, uh, and then I just thought, well, 
it's kind of now or never, let's, let's go. And I had no idea that I was going to make it, but I believed, I believed in myself so much that I, I, I didn't know, but I just said, stuff it, I'm going to give it a go. So I quit school teaching, had no job to go to, and then just pursued it like crazy. I moved back home with my mum and dad. They supported me, like paying my cell phone bills and you know, feeding me and housing me. And, and they just said, don't, don't, don't give up. And you know, they were the blue collar people. They, they, they didn't go to university. They didn't have a lot of money, but they had the street smarts to know that I could make it. And they just, my dad just said, don't ever give up. Don't you dare give up. You're, you're going to do this. So. I'm going to tell you, I love that story. I'm fortunate enough to talk to some young kids here or there, do some public speaking. And I tell most people, um, you know, jobs with parachutes usually aren't worth having, right? Like sometimes you got to get to the edge and the only way you find out what's on the other side, you just have to jump. And that doesn't mean you can't be ill-prepared or you don't have to work or right. Those all come with it. But, but if everybody's looking for a guarantee, there's just not a lot of guarantees out there. That's what I've learned. No, totally. And I, I can remember vividly watching a, um, a 60 Minutes Australia episode where they featured three um, very inspirational and successful young Australians under the age of 30 who were already millionaires. And one of them was an ad advertising executive who had come up with a very controversial ad campaign around the AIDS epidemic. And um, it was uh, set in a bowling alley and the 10 pins were human beings and the bowler was the grim reaper. And um, he would bowl the ball down and knock the human beings over, meaning more deaths, more deaths, more deaths. And uh, he was a very creative guy and, and um, uh, he shot to prominence and fame because of that. It was so, so jarring and attention grabbing. And he had a quote where, as far as motivation and inspiration, and it's like, you know, there's two, you know, two people on, on the edge of a cliff and, and uh, one's trying to encourage one to, to, to basically have a go. And, and the one person says to the other, well, well just, just go to the edge of the cliff. And I oh, know I, I can't, I can't, I'm afraid of heights. Seriously, just go to the edge of the cl cliff. You, you, you know, you might enjoy the view. No, 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 I can't, I can't. What, what if I, I might fall? Go to the edge of the cliff because you just might fly. Yeah. And I never forgot that. And, and I just, I always, took myself to the edge of the cliff to make sure I wouldn't fly. You know, I just, I, I made sure, you know, I, I took some pretty crazy risks along the way. They weren't always uh, calculated risks. Some of them were just <laughs> silly risks. And, uh, and, and, but I always believed that I, I would fly or wouldn't fall. Well, you talk about calculated risks. You know, it's one thing to decide you're going to work in television. Um, it's another thing now. So I, I you know, I, I'm a American. I've lived in the U S my whole life. I started in New England I moved to North Carolina in racing but you transferred all the way across the pond to come to the U.S. to work with Speed Channel that became Speed. Um, talk about, I, I really want to know the call. Like, at what point did you pick up the phone and think, man, this guy, they want me to move to the dang U.S.? Like, who, who was the guy that called you and said, we want you over here? So, um, uh, in between Australia and the U.S. was England, was the BBC. Right. So, I went... Uh, I had a terrific job at Network 10 in Australia. I was calling V8 supercars. I was, do, I was hosting uh, Champ Car Kart back then and we'd throw to the US commentators. I was working on World Superbikes, MotoGP and I was still only in my, my mid-20s. You know, I was only like 26 years old. I had the, I had the job of my life at 26. And, um, and uh, I had gone overseas a couple of times to do some F1 launches and I went in the late 1990s I went to the 24 hours of Le Mans twice to do a documentary. And when I was over there, 
uh, I was with a veteran Australian journalist and we were standing in the pit lane at Le Mans. Uh, his name's John Smales, by the way, still a dear friend to this day. Uh, and he said, what do you think of all this diff? And I said, oh, it's amazing. This pit lane is these cars. And he said, no, 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 stupid. He said, what do you think of this? Like life in the Northern hemisphere, you know, motorsport in the Northern hemisphere. And I said, oh, it's unbelievable. He said, you could be here. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you could be here if you wanted to be here. And I, and then from that point forward, I just became like, the, I became Mr. Networker. I kept every business card and I kept every, and, and I, and I, and I, um, at the end of 1999, I told my bosses I wasn't going to re-sign a contract and I was leaving the network. And they were like, you can't leave the network. And I'm like, well, I am. And I moved to London. I moved to England with no guaranteed job. Wow. And I left the job of my dreams chasing a bigger dream. And that was to go to, to the UK and replace, you know, the legend Murray Walker because he, he had announced that he was going to retire from Formula One commentary. And I said, well, I'm going to get that job. And uh, I moved to the UK. I had a contact, uh, a dear friend called Andrew Marriott, who has done a lot of pit lane reporting on Speed Channel. And he had a production company and he gave me, he gave me uh, little jobs here and there, voiceover jobs, enough to pay the rent and, you know, just to keep my head above water. One of those jobs was commentating the, the British Formula Ford Championship. And the year that I commentated it, Danica Patrick was in it, Patrick Long was in it, Marino Franchitti, Dario's brother, um, Anthony Davidson, the form, who went on to Formula One, James Courtney, who went became an Australian supercar champion. It was a really special time uh, in that. And so I was there for two weeks, Steve, literally two weeks. And I got a call from the BBC and uh, they said, we'd like you to come into our offices. Uh, we want to talk to you about uh, commentating World Superbikes. And little did I know, my old friend uh, back in Australia, Barry Sheen, two-time 500cc world champion, he had been calling the BBC and annoying the hell out of them behind my back saying, you need to employ this guy because he'd be good for you. And um, I did that for a couple of years, which was amazing. Uh, I, I, I missed out on Murray Walker's job, but I got to the final three. It was myself, Ben Edwards and James Allen. And as time now knows, all three of us ended up calling Formula One. So we all got our, our dream done there. And uh, so I thought, well, what's the next best thing to Formula One is IndyCar. Um, let, I, I, let's go to America. Let's, uh, let's see right. if I can find an opportunity to go to America. And I had some friends involved in No Fear. And uh, I, was, I, was, I was visiting with a friend of theirs, a guy called Jim Hancock, who was in London shooting some creative stuff. He was a marketing type. And, uh, and he's like, so you missed out? You were going to get that F1 job, but you missed out and you want to do IndyCar? And he said, I know the people at CART. I work for CART. And uh, I was like, oh. And he said, uh, come on, let's get out of here. We're at his hotel. He, he goes, let's get out of here. Let's get down the road to the pub and grab a beer and I'll call them. So he rang Chris Pook, the head of CART then, and he said, I'm with this young guy and, and they want him to do Formula One. We, we should have him on IndyCar, on CART. And so within, before we got to the pub, I had a phone call from a guy called Don Helms who ran Card International TV. And he's <laughs> like, we'd like to offer you a job to come to America. I was like, done. Let's go and have two beers. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you do it. I like that. You know, uh, Speed Channel was early 2000s, I guess, because that's when you know, selfishly. So listen, you and I, the one thing you and I have in common um, has nothing to do with TV. We just love motorsports, right? We, we, we would watch it. You name it. It doesn't matter. So I remember the, the speed channel. I was like, this is the best thing ever. Like there's a station. I don't I just know the number, right? I just go right here and, and I want to watch racing all the time. And I think that's where I first got to see your work. Um, 
you know, when you were in the BBC and that was, you know, that was nothing I was, I had the opportunity to see, but when you were at speed channels, when I started to see it, um, and then come to find out we both end up in NBC together. Like it's a, it's a crazy world, but I will say, um, of all the work you've done, your formula one booth for NBC has got to be the most, um, entertaining slash memorable. I, I, what's it like to try to keep hobo and match it somewhat between the hedges? Because they are spectacular on TV. But yeah. now that I work in TV, I realize someone has to keep it going in the right direction. Well, the beautiful thing was, is that uh, there's, an age, there's an age kind of related story that I like to tell. We were kind of like four brothers or maybe three brothers and a dad. Obviously, Hobo being the dad. But Will Buxton is about 10 years um, younger than me. Steve Matchett is about 10 years older than me. And then David is in his 80s. So we were like this dysfunctional family. And, but I was, I was the guy in the middle who had to keep the boat rowing in the right direction, you know, because Will is super energetic and super knowledgeable, but he can be wacky at times. Steve is super knowledgeable, super intelligent, super energetic, can be wacky at times. And David's just flat out wacky, right? So um, it, was, it was so much fun. And um, it really was like a family. And uh, there, there were, you know, as you, you've dealt with, with the guys you work with in the, in the NASCAR booth, not everybody's happy every day. Not everybody feel great, so every, feels great every day. Um, not everybody's into it every day. And you got to, but when the red light goes on, you got to pull everybody together and work. And it was awesome. I mean, talk about four totally different characters, right? But when you all get on air, it works. And, um, it's a really special part of my life and my working life that I'll, I'll cherish forever. Explain to the fan, though, I don't think they realize, um, other than Monaco, basically, every other one you would call from studio. Uh, we did. We did. We actually went, we would go to preseason testing in Barcelona. Yep. And that would get us going for the first few races. Then we would go to Monaco and we'd see our contacts in the pit lane and top up again on information and stories. And then that would get us, and then we'd go to Canada yeah. And then that'd bridge us for the next, you know, chunk of the season. And then we would go to the US Grand Prix. Yeah. So we'd do four trips a year, which was really nice because it was, it was um, uh, in comparison to what Speed used to do, Speed, Speed never traveled anybody uh, other than Will uh, and Peter Windsor back in the day. Um, but to, for us to get out there several times, you know, was really important. And, um, and uh, it, it kind of helped us because commentating in a studio uh, and not being able to, to speak face-to-face -face with the engineers or drivers or not that you get that much driver interaction in F1 anyway, but it was tough, you know, um, yeah. but so I'm for us, so I'm learning to let us out time. and get us out yeah. a few times. Yeah. It was awesome. So, uh, so I'm going to, so I came to NBC, uh, 15, I'm trying to think the year that you and I, Rick was doing Olympic trials. I had to be 17. I think he was going to do Olympic trials and you, got to bridge the gap and come over to the NASCAR world. I know you had done some Xfinity, but we finally got to do some cup races together. Yeah. Watkins Glen, you and I worked together and I'm going to brag on you for a minute. And that's the beauty when I have a podcast is I get to do the talk and you have to take the, this, this compliment. <laughs> you showed up at the booth in Watkins Glen. I've raced in NASCAR my whole life. I know everyone in the garage, the garage. And I saw your preparation. I saw your notes and there's a line and you're going to forget this line. You're going to even forget you ever said it. But during the Watkins Glen race, I want to say it was Josh Wise, but I could be wrong. Spins out in the bus stop and makes contact. And when it happens, you said, 
It's going to be a crushing blow to Josh Wise. He has completed every lap this season. And I thought to myself, that was a moment for me as a television person. I said, you know what? I'm not working hard enough. Because this guy right here, he does dang rugby and F1, and he does all these other sports, and he does Olympics. And he came in here, and he dropped this beautiful nugget about a guy who's grinding his life out to try to compete at the NASCAR level. And you had put the effort in for all these competitors. And it's a long-winded way of saying that working for, with you, those two races in the booth, made me way better at TV because I got to see how you prepared to do the job. It was amazing. It was amazing. I, I had an absolute blast. I'm hoping I didn't screw it too much up for you and you had a good time covering NASCAR. No, I, I loved it. I loved it. Um, that's, that was, uh, you know, when our boss, Sam Flood, rang me and offered me that opportunity. And by the way, I'd had a bunch of fun doing the Xfinity races. You know, that, yeah. was, that was awesome. Anyway, I was, I was thrilled with that. And in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd get to call Cup. You know, I've, a little side nugget, not only am I the first Aussie, I'm the first foreigner to ever be a play-by-play -play on Cup on American television. And that's something I'm vehemently proud of. I'm really proud hey, Everybody wanted to know who the English guy was. The it English was the best guy, thing yeah. ever on Twitter. I loved it. <laughs> Who's that British guy? Do you know what? Many years ago, mate, many years ago in the Speed Channel days, I would actually do some, uh, some cup and Xfinity uh, practice and qualifying. If I was at the race, like typically it was at the Glen because we would be there for the Grand Am series and, and Speed would say, listen, you know, go to the booth and do a little bit anyway and that'll help us out with some staffing stuff and, and you'll get a buzz out of doing some NASCAR qualifying and, and practice. And anyway, I was in the booth with, um, with Kyle Petty and Larry McReynolds uh, and, um, and I'd work with Larry Mack a lot on, on speed report and speed news and, and stuff like that. And, and I knew Kyle a little bit. Anyway, you know, Kyle, how he's so, um, he's so energetic and engaged on social media all the time. And somebody had written into Kyle and said, who's that guy in the booth with the funny accent? And he wrote back and said, Larry McReynolds. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, but those, mate, those two weeks, uh, Watkins Glen and, 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 um, and Michigan were awesome for me to be part of that team with you guys uh, was so memorable. And, um, you know, I, I, I survive off a, off a, to get back to your preparation story, I survive on a very healthy, healthy diet of fear. Uh, I never want to go on the air and, and sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. And I, I, I think that you can see very clearly when you watch other sports and even our own sport, and motorsport, you can see whatever you're watching, whatever discipline you're watching, you can tell when commentators haven't put the work in, you know, because it's fluff. It's kind of, you know, we yeah. call it, you know, red cars in front of a blue car, you know, grass is green, sky is blue. It's just all blah, blah, blah. And I don't ever want to sound like that. I tell the crew chiefs, I spoke to, you know, I call a bunch of them now. I don't get to see them in the garage, as you mentioned. And I tell them, listen, I, I know I can't make one go as fast as I used to. And I can't take your job from the technical side. But I feel from strategy and team leadership, I feel like if I can't step on top of a pit box right now, then I'm not doing my homework, right? Like the way the races are going to run and what options these, these crew chiefs have because they become more complicated. And I underestimated how quick the sport moves. This will be my sixth year out of the garage area. Um, you know, your Rolodex starts to shrink. People move on. You're forced to go find new people. Uh, your yeah. buddy James Small, you introduced me to him a long time ago. Here he is at Truex. Uh, great guy. I texted him out of the blue the other day. I said, hey, when we're allowed to go get a beer, should we go get one? And he was like, a couple. Let's go get a couple. And I, I, I've learned something about all you Australian folks, other than a night in Indianapolis that you and all your friends try to kill me. Um, you know, it, it's, you're very welcoming folks, but buckle up because it's going to be a good time. Y'all are tough as nails. 
you know what? I was, uh, I was, I had the fortune and just the stroke of luck to be in New York City on the same day with James Small, the same day that it became public knowledge that he was going to be taking over the crew chief role of the 19th. So, and appropriately, we were in a pub called The Australian in Midtown Manhattan. Sadly, <laughs> it's now closed, uh, but that was great. Just to see the joy on his face uh, when it became public and we told the whole bar and it was, it was awesome. It was a great day. Spectacular. Um, so listen, I want to talk about one event. You've done so many different things. Um, I'm an NASCAR guy, you're a motorsport guy, but you had the opportunity in my mind to call the event of all events when it comes to motorsport. Um, I went up for the month. Dale Jr. was up for the month. It's no secret. When the Indy 500 came to NBC, it was a big deal. I've never seen so many press suits and slacks from NBC at a race. Every boss of boss of boss was there, uh, which never makes it easier for us on-air people, right? Um, personally, where does your Indy 500 opportunity stack up with everything else you've done? You've done so much. But in my mind, that race, even as a NASCAR guy, that's still the most recognizable race in the world. Um, that's an easy one, Steve. It's right at the top. It's right at the top. And I say that in no disrespect to the work that I've done at the Olympics. Um, but across many networks around the world, a lot of um, hosts, commentators, uh, journalists get to do the Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. You can count maybe on two hands right. the amount of people who have been play-by-play -play on American television for the Indianapolis 500. And so I feel super privileged to be in that group. And I just, I can, to this day, and it was only just over a year ago, but I can remember the exact feelings and just cut when, when uh, you know, Simon Pagenaud is leading the field to green and, you know, coming to green. And I remember the morning I had my mum and my wife and my two sons there with me. My mum had flown over all the way from Australia. Um, I had some really dear friends. The guy who gave me my Supercross commentary opportunity in Australia, he'd flown over to be there for me. Uh, I had, we went out for a dinner afterwards. I think we had about 15 people at our table and most of them were Aussies. And um, it was just a really special family day. I wish my dad was still alive to have seen it. Um, but from that, from that day of commentating a hundred uh, flat track races and a, a, a handheld microphone and a transistor radio to the Indy 500 and uh, from the wooden tower at Tivoli Raceway in Australia to the, to the, um, Pagoda at Indianapolis, it's, it's been quite the road. And uh, I, I, I have never forgotten those early days for sure. The, the fundamentals. I've only done, you know, NASCAR, done some other things, but it seems to me what gets me through the, uh, you know, the championship race at Miami is that I need to be as prepared as I was for the first practice at Martinsville four weeks earlier. I mean, is it the same? So I'm the analyst, right? You look to me for the why something's going on. Uh, you're such a great storyteller. Did the fundamentals change or is the fundamentals the same from that flat track to the Indy 500? Um, well, I'll tell you something I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> I look back and I just think, God, you know, I, I really didn't know. I really didn't know what I didn't know back then. And, you know, even working all the years working for Channel 10 in Australia, Network 10 and the years working for the BBC and Sky Sports in the UK and different... I actually didn't become, you're very kind in saying I'm a good storyteller. I don't think I became a good storyteller until I came to NBC and I went to, and I went to my first Olympics in 2014 uh, in Sochi in Russia. And the NBC way, as you now know, um, you know, stats are stats. Uh, um, 
you know, commentary is commentary. We can call the action, but um, NBC pushes all of us to go deeper and, and, and to go beyond that and, and find out what the stories are. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was commentating in Rio on a guy who was Brazilian in, in the canoe and kayak racing. Brazil had never won a medal in that. And this kid who was like an Adonis, he could have been a football player. Um, it was when he was five years old, he had, he had tipped a, a saucepan of boiling water on himself and had burned himself severely, he had to be hospitalized. When he was 10, I think it was, he got kidnapped and he got returned to his mother about six months later. And when he was about 14, he was trying to catch a snake in a tree and fell out of the tree and hit a sharp rock and it, and it broke his ribs and punctured a lung. And then he came back from all, all of those, all of that adversity to become an Olympian. And then he went on to win a medal. He won a silver and a bronze for Brazil and he gave them. And, and uh, you know, they're the kind of stories you want to tell people because you'll never forget them, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I'm a car guy. I love racing. I love the things. But what I've learned working for NBC is, is, you know, it kind of goes along with how I ran a race team, right? It's all, Rick Hendrick taught me, and I'm a big believer, it's about the people. Because anybody can have the tools and anybody can buy the parts. And, you know, there are a handful of people in the world that just have more skill than the rest of us. And, and they are who they are. You can list them, right? You're Jeff Gordon's, you're Jimmy Johnson's, you're Mario Andretti's, right? Maybe you're Kyle Busch of, of current drivers. They're all very good. But other than this couple handful of uniquely skilled people, it really comes down to just people. Hard workers who believe in one another, who can do all the right stuff. Um, so I take that into TV now, right? Let's try to tell those people's story because the garage is full of them. Um, you know, just this last week, Austin Dillon goes to victory lane with a crew chief on that car was my engineer worked for Chad was raised, in, in, you know, by some of us over there. And it's so gratifying to see these people get opportunity. So that's why storytelling, I think is so important, um, for what we do. So the question is, what's the bucket list look like? I mean, you've done F1, you've done IndyCar, you've done the Indy 500, you do the Olympics. Uh, people don't know you've done golf, sailing, rugby. I mean, the list is long. <laughs> is there an obscure event, a famous event? Is it the damn Westminster dog shit? Like, is there this thing you've never called that you really want the shot to do? Um, on the motorsport side of things, I would love to call the Daytona 500. So, well, if you get that deal, I'm your guy because I want to call one too. Wrong half of the year. I'm with you. Wrong half of the year and wrong network. Yeah. <laughs> um, because as far as the uh, as far as the motorsports uh, triple crown is concerned, uh, I was able to do that from an announcer's side last year. You know, because I, I'd done Le Mans, I've commentated the twenty four hours of Le Mans ten times. I did the Monaco Grand Prix five times, and then last year doing the Indy five hundred. So I did that the, that motorsport triple crown. But yeah, I'd love, and I've done Bathurst. I've done I think I've done ten Bathurst one thousands. Um, and, and lots of Grand Prix and MotoGP and different things. But Daytona, you know, and then the sports car side of things, the Rolex 24 at Daytona, Sebring, different things. But the Daytona 500 would be pretty cool to say that, you know, that uh, I've, I've done that and the Indy 500. That, that would be nice. On a non-motorsport side of things, um, as a kid, I played Aussie rules football, uh, Australian rules football, and the AFL Grand Final is the equivalent of the Super Bowl here. And mm -hmm. it's played at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. There's over 100,000 people there. And uh, it's, it's like 
no other sporting event that I've been to. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And, uh, and I would love to call that, but that ship sailed. You gotta, you gotta live in, you gotta be living there for years. You gotta be in that environment. You gotta right. be, uh, you know, so there aren't too many more. And I don't, and I don't mean that to sound like I'm, I'm, you know, resting up or taking my foot off the gas. That's quite the contrary. I'm working harder than I have ever worked, but um, I think I've been very, very fortunate to do a lot of cool events, you know? Well, let's relate to everyone. Everyone in the last five or six months have been going through this crazy time. Uh, it's touched everybody in different ways, some in awful ways when it comes to health, other in awful ways when it comes to their financial standpoint. A lot of people have lost their jobs. You and I are both um, lucky enough to work for an employer that's still putting sports on air. Um, and you mentioned at the top of the show, some of it was over our computer with our ring lights, with all of our stuff. Uh, I have been able to do a couple races from remote. And I don't mind the races. The preparation is very hard. Yep. Oh, so you've gone to some IndyCar races. I've felt the remote. What I haven't felt is calling it a sporting event in an empty venue. Tell me from a, from a TV person, right? What's it like to stand in the booth at Texas and see the green flag with no fans? It's weird. It's really weird. It's something that I'd never experienced. It's, it's surreal. Uh, I was doing some um, media interviews uh, a couple of weeks ago leading up to the first doubleheader at Road America for IndyCar. And I got asked the same question. And I said, it's kind of like going to the office Christmas party, but you're the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's just, it's totally bizarre because not that, you know, if we were, if we were being public address uh, commentators, we would whip the crowd up into a frenzy and you rely on the reaction of the fans. And that doesn't happen in our world on television, right? Because we're broadcasting to people at home. But we do rely on, we do rely on the, that energy, I believe. Like you, you, you know, it, it's one of those things that it's a, it's a necessary ingredient there that makes you kind of get up for the event a little bit more. And certainly at Texas, you know, when you were up in the booth and you look out and down and you don't see anybody. And then uh, several weeks ago at Indy, at the, at the uh, Indy Grand Prix, being in the Pagoda where, where you call, um, well, not this year, but where you usually call the Brickyard 400 from, you know, same spot as us when we call the 500. We were in that, that exact commentary booth and you're looking across, you know, we're basically on top of the Yard of Bricks. We're looking across at the grandstands and, and you look down to turn four and halfway around to turn three and you look all the way up to turn one and and there's just nobody at the speedway. That was eerie. I found that I found being at Indy and not seeing anybody. That was it. That was way worse than Texas Motor Speedway. It was because when you go to Indianapolis, you just expect a big crowd. And the last time I was there, there was 350,000 people there. Right, so <laughs> that's there a big uh, Well, from what I hear, you're going to get that feeling again. I don't know if it'll be 350,000 people, but tell the listeners the Indy 500 is going to be when this year, August 23. And I don't know what number they're going to put on it as far as the crowd. Um, but Roger Penske has said if the local government and the local health officials, they're working closely with them and the CDC, et cetera, um, that he said they, are, they will have fans, but I just don't know how many. Hey, even if it was 100,000, it'd be great, right? Yeah. Even if it was a third full. Yeah, absolutely. I'd take any fans. Well, Diff... I would go into all kinds of stories. People that know you and I both know that we're social butterflies. I will let you know that uh, we both enjoy a bottle of wine. You used to live down in North Carolina with me. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but your card has officially run out at Ian's. I've drank every glass of wine I can <laughs> off your card. I appreciate you having some credit there. I appreciate you joining here. Man, listen, um, 
as I said, I was thrown into TV and I love NASCAR and I love to talk. Everyone knows that. But you and Rick and some of the other very talented people at NBC have put a blueprint out there that allows me kind of um, to learn my own way. But you kind of gave me a good blueprint of not messing up too bad, right? Like, don't get over there. Don't get over here. Stay over there. Um, I'll never forget the first ever race I did. Austin Dillon went into the fence. And I thought, what have I done? Here I am with a microphone in this horrific accident. And there's these things you can never be prepared for. I appreciate you giving us our time today from Queensland, Australia, which, oh, by the way, that's the only thing you still owe me is I've never been to Australia, but I'm going to have to go with you. I'm not going on yeah. the tourist trip. You're going to have to show me the real deal. Well, I have, to, I have to repay you for the night at Michigan Speedway, Michigan International, when you came knocking on the motor coach door and you said, come on, Diff, get on the golf cart. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you how people enjoy themselves in the NASCAR infield. And before I knew it, uh, we were having a beer with some dude who wrapped me in like a, sack, a silk sheet and I was going down a slippery slide and... There you go. It was a fun night. So I've got to repay you for that. <laughs> hey, you can't call a NASCAR race without getting the NASCAR experience. Diff, it's going to be great. This, you got IndyCar coming up. Um, what else you got on your tap this year? Rugby, IndyCar? I mean, you do MotoGP. have a GP. I've got MotoGP coming up this weekend and more IMSA, more sports cars. Um, Indy, you know, we're not, we're getting really close to leading up to the Indy 500. So that, that everything will start to ramp up. Um, rugby's going to kick into gear. I don't know how much track and field uh, is going to happen this year at the moment. You know, I did a bunch earlier in the year for the indoors, but just because of COVID-19, so many events have been pulled off. So I'm not sure if we'll call any track and field this year. I hope we do, but I just don't know whether we will do. So there's enough to keep me out of trouble, Stevie. I'll be busy. Well, the success of Letard on Location 2020 hangs in your hands. You're the first guest. And as always, I appreciate it. And I appreciate the listeners you enjoyed what you heard today, go subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. Get Latart on location. We're going to continue all year long with a bunch of great guests, hopefully in some great locations, if we can just get a little break with this crazy pandemic. Thanks for listening.